Please Leave podcast, home to stories that haunt. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. I'd found the first one mowing. I'd just moved in to this massive, rambling old mansion. It was an old, crumbling manor house. Eleven beds, six bath. Although three of the bedrooms had no ceilings, and one of the bathrooms had a hole in the floor where the bath had fallen through. The first week or so I spent unpacking my meager belongings, pulling off dust sheets and thoroughly inspecting and listing everything that needed repairing or replacing. It was a long list. The end of the first week, my friend Dave came over to help me with the first major job, which was to fix the numerous holes in the roof. No point attempting to remedy the water damage while it was ongoing, right? That only took a day, though. Most of the missing tiles had actually just slipped. Some a little, some a lot, but only two had fallen and smashed. I was amazed to find the shards on the ground below, still untouched since the day they fell. The next week, it was hot and stuffy indoors. Half the windows were painted shut, and it was sweaty work cutting through the layers of varnish on the outside and gloss on the inside to free them. That Thursday, after I'd done the huge dormer in what had become my bedroom, I found myself leaning on the sill, looking out, breathing the slightly cooler air, and decided I'd work outside instead. The garden was ridiculous, enormous. Seven acres enclosed by a high stone wall and almost completely overgrown. Everything from ground elder to enormous trees tangled together in a dense green congregation that covered almost every square foot of the land. At the front and rear of the house, there were still a few dozen yards of lawn, knee-high, and studded with wildflowers, cornflowers, poppies, buttercups. My parents had been particularly worried about the garden. You'll never tackle that, Mum had said, standing hands on hips at the bottom of the steps, up to the grand front door, facing the meadow and the intimidating jungle beyond it. What are you going to do? Burn it all down? Start again? No, you can't burn it, Dad cut in. Look down there. Those big evergreens were a topiary once, and I bet that thicket privet was a maze. No, no, there's a grand garden under there. You must uncover it. He'd glance back at me and then added, slightly scornfully, or, you know, get a man to uncover it. They had no faith in my abilities. I had not been a capable child. Not outdoorsy or handy, bad at sports, and happier hiding in a book than socializing at a party. But I wasn't a child any longer, and I had bought this aging mansion outright myself with the profits from an award-winning app I'd created and sold. Not that this seemed to have impressed my parents. In that moment, I wished they'd go home and let me dream the dreams that brought me here, instead of trying, as ever, to wake me up. They weren't wrong, of course. The garden would be a monumental task, and on top of all that replastering, rewiring, new ceilings, new floors, 
redecorating, and general tidying needed inside, but I was unafraid. Plants grow, and this place was beautiful anyway. I would make it usable again, in bursts, I decided. As and when I could, I would reclaim a little and a little until it was all tame and friendly again. I looked at the thicket in the middle distance as I thought this, and felt a slight foreboding. It wasn't a scary place exactly, but there was a wildness about it that made me wonder if the remnants of an abandoned menagerie were living out there, tooth and claw, waiting for lunch to come blundering in. But that was ridiculous. I decided that day I would cut the meadow at the rear. It had fewer wildflowers than the one at the front, and if I cut it back, I'd have a place I could put lawn furniture and my ultimate dream, a frame hammock. On the first day, I'd found an old petrol mower in one of the coach houses, and I went now to fetch it. Using a short length of hose, I carefully siphoned some of the petrol from my car's tank and set to working getting the thing going. To my surprise, the blades were already sharp, and it only took three or four yanks on the starter cord to get the motor going. I began close to the servant's entrance, which went into a mudroom and then the kitchen, first cutting the once-worn path around the big rear terrace and then around the side to the front entrance. Once I'd done that, I began to enlarge the area at the back, strip by strip, back and forth, It was too long for a mower, I quickly realized, and made a mental note to ask around for a weed whacker to borrow after today. But for now, I pressed on, forcing the mower through the long grass. It was hard work, and when I'd gotten to roughly the middle of it, I paused to take stock. I glanced about, wondering how much longer the petrol would last, and thinking that when the motor sputtered off, I would fetch the hay rake and rake the cuttings up ready to go into the compost heap I was yet to create a spot for. Then I noticed something a few feet away in the long grass, something black and shiny. Leaving the mower running, I waded in to investigate. It was a sundial, on its side and completely overgrown. Black marble with inlaid yellow metal, brass perhaps. The surfaces were mostly a dusty greenish, but the face, even though it was lying in the grass, was shiny and clear, reflecting like a black mirror. It appeared to be intact, just toppled, and so with some effort, I heaved it up onto its base. I knew that to be effective, the dial had to face a certain direction, but I didn't know which. I'll need to Google that later, I thought. Then I went back to the mower, determined to cut far enough that the sundial would stand clear and proud on the short grass. Back and forth I went once more, enlarging the space until I passed behind the sundial. But just as I did, the motor began to cough from thirst as the petrol ran out and I hit a lump in the ground. Most of the lawn had been surprisingly flat under the overgrown grass, but where the sundial had been, underneath where it had been lying, there was a little mound. Not large, maybe two feet long and a foot or so wide, only perhaps four or six inches high. But the mower blades hit it and cut straight through the earth, flinging it out and up into my eyes. I cursed and turned my face away as the mower chuntered to a stop, suddenly silent but for the soft tick, tick, tick of the cooling metal. 
I dragged it back, off the broken earth, and then I found it. It was a little skull, an animal skull. It must have been a pet, I thought, buried here in the lawn with the sundial as a sort of marker. I bent and picked it up, rubbed the earth off it, hooking it out of the eye sockets, and wondered what sort of animal it had been. The brow was short and domed, the nasal cavity was tiny, and though the lower jaw wasn't attached, the upper jaw held a row of tiny, pointed teeth. A pug puppy, I guessed, but realized right away it was far too large to be a puppy. It filled my hand, was seven or eight inches across, but the teeth were wrong for an adult dog. Maybe some kind of bulldog, I thought. I bent then and found the lower jaw pointing out of the soil and fitted it back into the skull. It didn't seem to match very well, or else it was very undershot. But then bulldogs are. It had obviously been there for a long time and only smelled of earth, and I decided to take it inside and rinse it off, see if I could figure out what kind of skull it was for definite. Mowing was done for the day anyway. Indoors, I washed it, gently scrubbing with a nail brush and mild soap then set it on the drainer to dry and went outside to rake. Later that night, I set it on the old Welsh dresser that had been in the kitchen when I moved in, and sitting nearby, I googled to see if I could find something that matched. It was a little like a pug skull, but the eye sockets were wrong. Online, the pug skull had cheekbones like little arches so that the eyes almost balanced at the front of the face. But the skull from the garden had actual sockets in the front of it for the eyes. Likewise, the lower jaw wasn't right for a bulldog. It was undershot, yes, but it turned back on itself at the upper edge so that the teeth did meet. And the teeth were a huge question mark, too. There didn't seem to be recognizable canines or carnassials. Instead, there were just two rows of almost identical, small, conical, sharply pointed teeth. They were slightly translucent, like cloudy glass. They reminded me of the teeth of the fish that lived too deep in the ocean to see daylight. It grew late. I googled which direction sundial should face and learned a whole lot of new words. I must place the blade of the gnomon so that it faces true north. Then I went to bed, leaving the skulls staring with its empty sockets into the darkness. Then... Honestly, I kind of forgot about it. After a few weeks, I absentmindedly stuck it in a cupboard, and then it was out of sight, out of mind. I worked hard on the house, replacing some of the ancient plumbing and changing the parish washers and all the brass taps so that they no longer leaked. I'd spent most of the profits from the app on the house and land, and I carefully spread what was left thinly around. I rewired the whole house, paying an electrician only for two days to check all my work and reconnect the supply. I paid friends in barbecue and beer to help me paint and clean. I spent the last few thousand getting the old gatehouse, the least moldy and most cozy of the outbuildings, into a state where I could put it on Airbnb and start a little income rolling in. I had other ideas for apps, tools, but I need to be able to hyper-fixate to do that stuff, and there was still too much to be done in the house for me to take that kind of break. Holiday makers arriving to stay in the gatehouse was what brought the neighbors over for the first time. 
The guests, a couple in their 60s, had arrived on Friday afternoon about four months after I'd moved in, and I'd given them a brief tour and withdrawn to the house to let them settle in. I was just putting the kettle on when I heard an odd clanging noise. So infrequently had it been touched since I moved in, it took me several seconds to realize it was the front door knocker. When I opened the door, expecting it to be one of my guests with a question or complaint, I saw instead a squat, matronly woman with an explosion of grey curls crammed under a felt hat. Hello? Can I help? I inquired, swinging the door wider. Are there people in the gatehouse? The woman asked breathlessly. Hi, I'm Steph, I said, holding out my hand. And you are... Joe, she said, gripping my hand fiercely and shaking it. Josephine, from the farm over there. She nodded her head towards her shoulder, causing the curls to bounce. Nice to meet you, Joe, I said. How can I help? Are there people in the gatehouse? She demanded again, slightly angrily, I thought. Uh, yes, there are. Paying guests, I said. Got to get some income rolling in if I'm going to fix this place up properly. Joe was shaking her head emphatically. They can't stay, she said. Tell them to leave. I beg your pardon, I said stiffly. Who the fuck was this woman marching in to tell me how to use my own property? Tell them to go, she said again. It's not safe there. Not so close to the... Well, the... To the... I was losing my patience with this oddball. Well, to the gardens. To the old orchard, she finished shortly. They mustn't go in there. It's not safe. Why on earth wouldn't it be safe? I asked, incredulous. It's a bit overgrown, and the wasps are after the fallen apples, but it's not going to hurt anyone sensible. No, there are other things that go in the orchard. You have to tell them to stay out. What things? I asked, immediately annoyed at myself for prolonging this nonsense. Never mind, Joe replied. That's not important. It's only important that they stay out. Well, I said, it's all very overgrown. My own inroads into the garden had stopped at the lawn's front and back, and about a third of the walled garden, which had once contained vegetables and herbs, and was now a forest of woody peppermint, punctuated by the odd potato plant. I shouldn't worry too much. I doubt anyone would choose to go in there. See that they do not. She leaned in for emphasis though she was a good foot shorter than me and not at all intimidating. <laughs> or what? I asked. Damn it, why couldn't I stop engaging with this? Or you'll see! She half shouted, her finger prodding into my chest. Then she turned and stumped off down the steps and towards an old Land Rover parked nearby. I watched her drive off down the track to the gate, shaking my head. What a nut. Then the kettle began to whistle from the kitchen, and I ran back to make my tea. After the tea, and in spite of myself, I decided to take a little wander through to the orchard. I felt ridiculous pulling on my jacket, but this Joe had sort of unnerved me. I cut across the lawn, past the sundial, and to the path I'd formed with a machete a few months back, through the tangle of growth beyond. Even this late in the year, there had been regrowth, and I stopped and wove and stumbled my way along until I reached the orchard. 
Once it had been grand, I could tell. Four long rows of apple and pear trees, about twenty feet apart, stretched down to the wall that bordered my land. In the far corner, I could see a little patch of tiled roof, the gatehouse, which stood beside the rusted gates. It was overgrown here now. Boughs on some of the trees hung to the ground, bare, having been so heavy with fruit in a previous year that they'd cracked and fallen. Little seedling and sapling trees grew all around where the wind-fallen fruits had rotted and left the seeds lying. It needed work, but still, there was a bounty here. Large apples of all colors, from fresh green to the deep golden and through burnt orange to vivid reds, hung in dense clusters on the branches. Wasps, bereft and hungry this time of year, now their young were grown, buzzed from place to place in the grass, feasting on the rotting fallen fruit. I reached up and plucked a ripe-looking apple from the nearest tree and took a bite. It was delicious, tart and sweet and fresh and slightly sun-warmed on one side. Absolutely delightful. I continued eating it as I walked down between two rows of trees to inspect the access from the gatehouse. When I got there, I saw a dense thicket of brambles, which grew taller than me and dozens of feet deep between the trees and the house and relaxed a little. Nobody could accidentally wander in from there. Satisfied, I turned to go, and just for a second, I thought I saw movement. Up the other end and the furthest row, I thought I saw something move, something big. But the movement was not slinking, more bustling, a Labrador, not a lynx. There was something there. I stood still and stared, my heart thudding a little faster. It must have been a bit of shrub, I thought, squinting at the thicket of the rhododendron and privet, moving in the wind. It's not windy, a little voice inside whispered, but I dismissed that. It's sheltered here with all the trees. The wind just didn't reach me. I fought my way back the way I'd come to the house, taking my apple core with me. It was overgrown enough, no point adding to it. Those guests stayed for three nights, and as far as I could tell, they didn't venture further than the little bit of garden beside the gatehouse. They left a cracking review, five stars. I had seen them as a sort of practice run for the coming season, because it was so late in the year already. But in fact, they were the start of a steady trickle of guests which went on into the winter. The guest house is small. It only sleeps two adults, though I had put a travel cot in, folded and tucked neatly under the wardrobe for any couples with a baby or a toddler. And the first of the weird ones did have a toddler with them. It was almost Christmas when they came the 19th of December. They were driving to spend the holidays with relatives, they said, and wanted a few nights break from driving with me. They'd booked to leave me on the 22nd. They seemed nice enough. A woman in her late 20s, an older man, maybe early 40s, and their toddler, who was about a year and a half old. At that age where they talk the whole time, but nobody but their parents can understand what they're saying. I think it was a girl, but to be honest, it had sort of mid-length hair and wore clothes covered in rainbows, so I'm not completely sure. They seemed completely happy on the first day. On the 21st, I saw them playing on my lawn, the little one toddling and falling on the frozen grass, 
abandoning their mittens and leaving hot, melted handprints on the frosty sundial. That night was the strangeness. I woke just before four in the morning and lay still for a moment, wondering why. You know that feeling when you know you've been woken by something, but you're not sure what yet. Well, I lay there in that moment, in the pitch black of my room, and then, on the edge of my hearing, I heard a shout outside. I jumped out of the bed and went to the window. On the lawn, I saw two lights, cell phone torches, I guess, moving erratically here and there. Harper? A woman's voice, sounding thin, strained. Harper, where are you? A man's voice now, the same strangled tone of panic. Turning away, I grabbed my dressing gown and ran out and down the stairs to the kitchen where my boots sat beside the door. Stepping into them barefoot, I opened the door and ran out, but the lawn was empty. Hello? I shouted. Is anyone there? The garden was still and silent, the trees hulking shapes all around. A row of things near the privet thicket looked oddly uniform, and I stopped and stared at them, straining to make out what they were, but they didn't move, and I concluded they were just bushes. In the distance, I thought I heard a car engine starting. Hello! I tried again, but there was nothing. Switching on my own cell phone torch, I began to walk towards the track. I needed to check on the gatehouse, but there was no way I was going through the gardens in this dark. I stomped along, my bootlaces trailing, stopping every few yards to call and listen. When I got to the gatehouse, it was dark and quiet. I must have dreamed the whole bloody thing, I realized. How else could they have gone from screaming on the lawn to fast asleep in bed in only the time it took me to run down the stairs? I considered knocking for a moment, but quickly dismissed the idea. I could only imagine the review they'd leave if a half-dressed, manic owner woke them at 4am because of a bad dream. I turned away and tramped back up the track into my bed. In the morning, the police came. I was shocked to see their car purring up the track. Two officers got out, but I opened the door before they could knock. They asked if I knew these people, giving their names. Yes, I told them. They were staying in my gatehouse for a few nights. They were due to check out in the next hour or two. Can we come in? They asked. Their car had been found at 5 a.m. a few miles away. They'd come off the road and hit a tree. A farmer saw the fire in the distance from his milking shed doorway and called the police. They wanted to know if anything had happened. I told them my story, embarrassed, asserting I'd thought it must be a dream. Was their car there when you checked on the guest house? They wanted to know. But I hadn't looked and didn't remember. They went into the guest house and looked around, but all the people's belongings were gone. The key left in the bowl on the table at the front door. It looked like they'd simply decided to check out early. I think the police tended to agree that what I thought I'd seen and heard had just been a dream. Later, I read in the paper that the car had burned so hot they never found the toddler's remains. She, or he, had been burned up completely. That was it for guests that winter. 
I wasn't directly associated with the incident in the press, but it had freaked me out. And it was winter anyway, so I just quietly turned the advert off for a few months. But when March rolled around and the weather was warming, and I was able to crack on with some of the bigger jobs the house needed, I decided it was time to get some money coming in again. I worked hard outside when the weather improved, managed to clear more garden back as far as the privet forest, and had decided my old dad was right. It had been a maze, and I ordered hedge trimmers online so I could begin the mammoth task of reducing it back to a usable attraction. That's when I found the second one. I was digging out the dozens of sycamores that had taken root among the privet, from a few inches to a few feet in size. I put my fork under a particularly large and sturdy one. It was stubborn to lift, and as I levered my weight down and the roots emerged from the ground, I saw they were growing through another one, another skull. I'd almost forgotten the first and remembered it with a rush as the dirt-filled sockets rolled around towards me. I untangled it from the roots and put it aside. Later, I washed it carefully and dug around in the cupboards until I found the other one, putting them together. This second had no bottom jaw and many of the teeth were missing or broken, and it was much bigger. The previous owners must have bred them, I thought. Clearly the first was a puppy and this an adult. What were these giant dogs with these pug-like faces called? I made a mental note to take them to my dad at his work. He was a botanist, but he knew lots of other biologist types. Someone would be able to tell me what they were. That spring season went really well. Lots of happy guests and nice reviews and enough money for me to have the large hall in the house, which I hoped one day to be a wedding venue to die for, replastered. The plasters were just finishing up, dismantling their scaffold and loading it onto their flatbed truck when Marianne arrived. She had booked a weekend at the gatehouse, the 18th to the 25th of June. She was, I could see at first glance, an eccentric. She wore long, layered clothing, a floaty top over a tunic over a long skirt, lots of bangles and beads. Her hair, which was waist-length, and just beginning to grey at the temples, hung loose around her shoulders. Knock, knock, she'd said, suddenly appearing in my kitchen. Sorry to just walk in. I tried actual knocking, but the workmen seemed to be drowning me out. I leapt to my feet, made introductions, and took her back outside and down to the gatehouse. During the walk, she told me that she was recently divorced, trying to finish a novel, and had hitchhiked to get here. I was a bit surprised, asked if she didn't think it was a bit dangerous on her own. She had laughed and said the most dangerous animals on the planet are humans and that she was one of those. I never saw her again. Well, almost never. On the 20th, I thought I'd heard her singing in the garden somewhere, but didn't actually see her. On the 25th, I went down about an hour after my specified checkout time, laden down with fresh sheets and cleaning supplies, and found the guest house neat and empty. It was over a month later the police came asking about her. She'd never arrived home, they said. I was baffled by this, told them everything I knew. 
The gatehouse had other guests in it, and at the time I offered to risk my ratings and let them search anyway, but they declined. They were quite disinterested, I felt, in Marianne. They seemed to conclude that she had been in a vulnerable state after the ending of her marriage, the heavily hinted-at conclusion being that she'd taken her own life. It seemed odd to me. The woman I'd met seemed determined and steely and optimistic, not vulnerable. It was about that time I took the skulls to the uni. I'd arranged to meet my dad and his colleague around 10 on Wednesday and was planning to take him out for lunch afterwards. Come in, come in, he smiled as I knocked on the door to his office. Harriet, this is my illustrious offspring, Steph. This is Harriet. She's a world-leading expert, he said, turning back to me. Harriet was a middle-aged woman, tall and angular, with sharply bobbed hair and little rimless glasses balanced on her nose. Oh, Jim. She rolled her eyes at his compliment. Turning back to me, she smiled. I hear you've got something you want me to ID, she said, offering a hand to shake. I shook it and then sat down and took the two skulls out of my bag, handing them one by one to Harriet. She examined them for a while, turning them this way and that, looking at them through a small magnifier as my dad and I filled her in on my house, the garden, and where I'd found them both. Eventually, she looked up at us both, smirking from one to the other. Very funny, she said. Sorry? I didn't understand. They're very good. What did you use? She asked. Use? I was mystified. Are they fakes? Dad was more on the ball than me. Mmm, very good ones. Harriet was nodding, holding the smaller skull at arm's length, turning it so that the sunlight from the window glittered through the teeth. But I dug them up. In my garden, I reiterated. I think a previous resident had a rather odd sense of humor, Harriet laughed. These are definitely fakes. There's nothing on earth that I know of that has a skull like this. The teeth in particular give it away. She held them out towards me. But wait, they're made out of bone, aren't they? I couldn't believe I'd been fooled. Harriet pushed a nail gently against the cheekbone of the larger skull. They seem like bone, she conceded. And who knows, they seem quite old, and in previous centuries, people were not above using bones, even human bones, to make these hoax pieces. But see the teeth? These are like the teeth of fish. See how underneath these missing ones there are more within? She tilted the bigger skull to show us. But the nasal cavity tells us this creature would breathe air. Like I said, very clever, very well done, but fakes. The meeting had rather taken the wind out of our sails, and Dad and I decided to get something to take away for lunch and go back to the house instead. He was wanting to see the maze now I'd begun cutting, and I felt annoyed, out of sorts, to have been convinced by the fake skulls. I had liked wondering about the pets of a previous resident, loved and buried in the garden. I didn't like thinking about a conniving previous resident laughing and burying these weird fake bones for others to find. Back in the garden, Dad was enthralled by the maze. I'd cut about a third of it down to brown, six-foot-high box hedges. 
It was a shame to have to remove all the foliage like that, but I knew it would come back the next year and the maze would be usable again. Dad quickly commandeered my trimmers and forged on, deeper in, trying to find the center. He found it very quickly. I was surprised how close I'd been, only a few rows of hedges away without having a clue. The first indication was a gap at the privet roots about four feet wide. Dad carved a doorway through above this, and as the privet fell away, we saw and smelled another tree. Oh. Dad's voice was hushed in awe. A Japanese wisteria. And what a beauty. It was a tree, about 30 feet tall, absolutely dripping with long, white racemes of fragrant flowers hanging down. It was glorious. Stepping towards it, I saw another surprise. There was a pond. Large, maybe 25 feet across, with a low-walled edge of carved stone. Though a murky and bit stagnant looking, it did have a few clusters of water lilies on the surface. The gloomy waters reflected the white flower clusters of the wisteria and the white trumpet-shaped flowers growing on another thicket of plants across the other side of the pond. Dad saw them about the same moment I did. Brugmansia, he said, and pointing over at another flowering tree, he added, and night-blooming jasmine. There was another sundial here, I saw, this one still upright. I went over to it, but when I looked at the dial, it was different. I couldn't make sense of it. Dad joined me then and began to chuckle. What is it? <laughs> A joke, he said, grinning. Another fancy of your skull maker, perhaps. Seeing my confusion, he added, It's a moon dial. A what? A moon dial, he said, wiping the surface of the dial face. Same concept as the sundial, except they only read the correct time on the full moon, and only if there is sufficient moonlight to even read it. He looked around the enclosed place now, nodding slowly. Ah, uh, I get it, he said after a moment. It's a night garden. All these plants, he waved an arm, either flower or scent at night, or flower more or scent most strongly at night. And there's a moon dial. This is a night garden. Bit odd, though, he tilted his head. Some of these are annuals. I suppose they must be self-seeding. It doesn't look like a human has stepped foot in here for a few decades. Just then, there was movement in the pond. He didn't see it, but I did. It was a huge rolling, as if a three-foot catfish or small alligator had flipped around. I let out a small yelp of surprise, and he turned his head, but there were only ripples. When I tried to describe what I'd seen, he told me about a pond he'd helped repair as a boy, in which long-forgotten goldfish had grown to 15-pound orange monsters and had to be housed in an old trough while the pond was fixed. We went back to the house then, planning on a cool drink and a seat in the shade. The movement in the pond had spooked me. I knew it was only a fish, but the idea that monstrous fish were living in the pond I'd owned for over a year and I'd only found out today gave me a weird, creepy feeling. What else didn't I know about? Several times, moving back through the garden, I thought I saw something slipping between the trees on the edge of my vision. 
When we emerged once more onto the sun-flooded lawn, I was surprised to see Joe from the farm standing beside the servant's door. She'd been holding the handle, about to go in, I thought, when she heard us approach and turned. Oh, goody, I said quietly to my dad. It's my neighbor, keen enough, but not terribly sane. Joe began to wave, and I raised a hand and called out, Hello! The police came, Joe began, as soon as we were close enough to hear her. About that, Marianne? When was that? Joe, this is my dad, I said. Dad, this is Joe. She has a farm from over there. I threw out an arm vaguely. Joe, we were just about to have a cold drink. Would you like to join us? She didn't actually answer, but she followed us inside to the kitchen as we went, and I took this as assent. I opened the fridge and pulled out sodas while she repeated herself. This Marianne, was she here? They said she was here. The police, she garbled. When was this? I held out a can of lemonade, which she took and opened, slurping impatiently. Yes, she was a guest here, I said, holding a can out towards Dad. Back in June, the third week, I think? The 21st, she demanded. I'm not sure. That week, I think, though. Why? And? Her agitation was growing. And what? I barely saw her. I shrugged, opening my own drink. She arrived, told me she was a writer, freshly divorced. I left her to it. I never saw her after that. Went down on checkout day and the place was empty already. But she's missing. Joe squinted at me. The police say she never went home. They seem to think she'd taken herself off and committed suicide. I frowned. Though I'm not too sure about that. She seemed quite chipper to me. But she definitely left here, Joe leaned in. I assume so, I said. All her belongings were gone, she was gone, and the key was left where my checkout instructions asked for it to be. I shrugged again. When she arrived, she'd hitchhiked here. Maybe she left the same way and someone murdered her. My dad tutted at this flippancy, and I felt a small twinge of shame. He was messing about with my bag now, taking the skulls out. You should put those on display down there in your gatehouse, he said, placing them one beside another on the kitchen table. I'm sure some creepy horror fan would love them. The effect on Joe was immediate and electric. She dropped her soda on the worktop, stepped forward, her eyes wide, her curls wilder than ever, grabbing my forearm with both hands in a vice-like grip. Where did you get those? She hissed. The garden, I replied, stepping back and pulling my arm free. No need to panic. They saw a world-leading expert today. They're fakes. Fakes? Joe's voice remained low, strangled. Expert? You took them from here? Yes, I just said that. To the university to see a zooarchaeologist. I took another step backwards for good measure. This woman was crazy. Oh no. Joe was trembling now. Not just her hands, but all over her. What have you done? She whispered. Harriet is a world-leading expert, Dad cut in. She can be trusted with bones. Besides, he rolled his eyes a little at her. They're not real. You fools! Harriet shrieked. What have you done? How could you be so stupid? Now, steady on. Dad tried to cut in, but Joe wasn't having it. Why couldn't you just leave it all alone? She was heading for the door now. 
It was all ticking along fine until you came. And of all the crimes to commit, you do this? Her voice was getting quieter as she stamped away, out of the kitchen and through the mudroom. That's it, of course. The car wreck at Solstice, and this Marianne at the Equinox. That has to be it. Absolute blithering idiots. Well, I tried, and it's in your hands now. God knows what they'll do. Absolute bloody imbeciles. Then the servant's door slammed, and she was gone. Well, said Dad. Told you, I said, swigging my soda. Mad as a fish. The next morning, I woke not long after dawn and decided I'd take advantage of the cooler time of day to work on the maze. It was stupid early, but I could always have a nap later on, I reasoned. I dressed quickly and chugged water in place of breakfast and went out. Over the next hour, with machete and trimmers, I cut and dragged away more privet, returning another ten yards of maize to a rational-sized hedge. About seven, I wanted a break, and instead of heading to the house, I decided to check out the night garden again. I ducked in under the wisteria and breathed in the heady air. The intoxicating plant perfumes of the night still clung here. I went slowly to the edge of the pond and bent down to look into the water. I couldn't see the bottom. The water was a translucent brown, and I could only make out murky shapes. But it looked deep, much deeper than I'd expected. Turning away... I made out another shape under the wisteria, and on closer inspection, saw it was a little stone bench. Perfect, I thought. I grabbed my machete and cut back the foliage around it so that I could sit and rest. I sat and looked over the pond. This will be a great space, I thought, once the maze was sorted and the trees here pruned back a bit. I half-closed my eyes and imagined bridal parties, laughing, champagne flutes in hand under the wisteria as their photographer snapped pictures. Movement. In the pond. My eyes snapped wide again, ripples and rolling just like the day before. My stomach flipped in alarm as I saw a smooth brown dome rising from the surface of the water. It was a head, I realized. Shiny, wet in the sunlight. Hairless, brown, like drowned leaf litter on the pond bottom. Two long-fingered hands curled over the carved stone pond wall. The face became visible. It was horrifying. Large, bulbous eyes glowed pale above the tiny, snub nose. Instead of a mouth, a pendulous growth, like a gigantic scrotum, seemed to hang down. The thing pulled itself up out of the water and flopped over the wall onto the ground. It was like a man, I thought, as it wriggled round to standing. Brown and wizened and slimy, but basically, in the head and torso anyway, humanoid. The legs were absent, though. In their place were two sort of stumpy flippers, claws curling from the front edges into the dirt. The thin arms reached almost to the ground. It raised a hand to its drooping mouth parts then, and as it drew the bulging lump away, I realized it was not a mouth, not a part of the creature at all, but a bag containing something lumpen and rounded. It raised this bag towards me. Its mouth, I saw now, 
was a huge, lipless, arching maw, downturned at the corners, the jutting chin giving it the look of a bulldog. Like some monstrous, naked, human-bulldog hybrid, its eyes glittered as if lit from within as it held the bag up and opened its terrible mouth to speak. The voice was between a hiss and a grunt, incongruously high-pitched, almost like a squealing pig. Quid pro quo, it shrilled, shaking the bag. Quid pro quo. As it returned the bag to its mouth and suddenly began to lurch rapidly towards me on its flippers and knuckles, cantering like a marauding gorilla, my chest was tight with terror and I heaved a great shuddering breath and yelled out, Ugh! as it reached me. The machete was still in my hand and I saw with horror and relief that I had swung in time and it came down on the side of the thing's neck. The machete lodged there and the thing collapsed at my feet, a few squealing grunts escaping its gaping mouth. Black blood coursed in hot, pulsing jets from the wound across my boots. The sack came bouncing off its hand as it went down and I watched in disgust as it disintegrated on impact and the contents bounced out of it too. Two human heads. One of that toddler. One an adult woman came tumbling and rolling from the bag and came to rest in the wet black puddle at my feet. The smaller one was unrecognizable bloated and discolored but the other one was unmistakably Marianne she was looking up at me from where I sat frozen with shock on the stone bench her sightless clouded eyes seemed to admonish me the other head I realized it must be little Harper the baby they'd said was all burned up quid pro quo something for something it had just wanted the skulls back. There was another splash, and I looked up. Another one of the things was pulling itself up from the pond now, tumbling over the wall, hissing and flailing. Two more followed it, and then five more, and then dozens. They streamed, they swarmed, pouring from the pond and out towards me, bulbous eyes glowing, toady mouths gaping, glassy teeth glittering, and in the low-angled morning sunlight, they came cantering too, a brown mob rushing towards me, and this time I was unarmed. Fear turned me to stone. I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. When they reached me, they seized me with their cold, slimy brown hands and forced me down onto my back on the bench. A murmur ran through them then, and the hissing subsided. And then another one leaned over me. It wore a string of objects around its neck. Beads, I thought at first. But then I saw one was a mud-streaked car key fob. Another a baby's pacifier, saturated with filth. Was it the leader? It pointed to its stricken brethren with my machete still stuck in its neck and opened its disgusting mouth. The others took hold of my head and yanked it to one side, fully exposing my neck. 
Motor function returned on the tidal wave of adrenaline, and I tried to fight, tried to break free, but it was useless. There must have been a dozen of them holding on to me. The one with the necklace leaned closer so that its luminous eyes were inches from mine. Its icy, cold, compost-scented breath engulfed my face. Quid pro quo, it hissed. And then it opened its mouth wide around my throat and bit. was written by Quebec Stranger and narrated by Lindsay Hubner. Our Patreon is officially live, so for more stories that haunt and a behind-the-scenes look at what we do and how we do it, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. 